0: Welcome to Move Forward Radio, I'm Jason Bellamy. Victoria Graham attempts to go through each day with the positivity of a beauty pageant champion, which makes sense because she is one. But hidden behind that smile and positive attitude is almost constant pain. Victoria has Ehlers-Danlos Syndrome, or EDS, which affects her body's connective tissues, causing dangerously flexible joints and fragile skin. In this episode of Move Forward Radio, Victoria describes how she manages her condition, which has involved medication, physical therapy, and multiple surgeries. One of those surgeries left a 25-inch scar down the length of Victoria's spine. Now Victoria is looking to make a similarly lasting impression on others with invisible diseases like EDS by sharing her story. Here now is our conversation with Victoria Graham.
2: So, Victoria, rather than have you define what Ehlers-Danlos syndrome is for everyone, I just want to start by defining what it means to you in your life today in terms of how this syndrome affects you and what it means to your daily life.
1: Having Ehlers-Danlos syndrome really makes my life complicated, to say the least. The way that it affects the body is it's physically falling apart. The collagen is not as strong and supportive as it should be. And I'd say that pretty accurate when it's describing my life. I have to over-prepare for everything, whether it means going on overnight trip, I'm packing double the medication in case I have to stay late, whether I'm going to an event that's three hours away, I need to make sure that I have ample time to prepare before and after. When it comes to seeing doctors, I'm actually on the way to see a doctor right now. And it just means that whatever I'm doing, I need to make sure that I'm being, one, careful, and cautious about the impact it's going to have on my body, and also make sure that what I'm doing is important.
2: And so then day-to-day, in terms of when you successfully prepare and when you don't, um, most basically, what does it feel like? What does it feel like to have this condition? And then what's the difference between preparing and not preparing in terms of its physical and emotional and, and all that impact on you?
1: I think the biggest thing is pain. Uh, If I'm, let's say I'm running late for something, and, and I try to take a little jog and run, you know, I will dislocate my ankle if I'm not being careful, and that hurts. If I am trying to speed through doing six different things, and I should really only be doing three, then it means I'm going to pay the price later in terms of the toll it takes on my body. If I am not taking ample time to recover, then my body will physically feel it. And it starts to get you emotionally as well, because if I'm trying to compare myself to someone else while they're out running a mile, not physically, but doing so many things and I'm not able to do as many, I find myself quite often comparing myself to them. And when I do that, I feel that I'm inadequate. And so what I really need to do is take an extra moment to think about the fact that I am the one living this body. I am the one who is having to deal with the consequences if I'm not taking care of it. And I've really had to focus on learning how to look at myself rather than comparing myself to someone else. I need to really look at how I'm doing and how I'm doing compared to my own best and my own worst and make sure that I'm making the most of these opportunities without taking the biggest toll in my body.
2: So it sounds like you obviously have a very healthy approach to this, both in terms of protecting yourself physically, but also just that sort of mental health approach of kind of keeping mm-hmm. sane amongst all these challenges. It <laughs> always you, been
1: like that. <laughs>
2: right. Well, and, and maybe we'll get to that in a second. But when you manage it successfully this way, and, and, again, that sounds like successful management to me, then what's what's the pain like? So you sort of mentioned there's there's potential for pain every day. But are you in daily pain and, and what's the on a 1 to 10 scale or something, what kind of pain is that that you're living with?
1: Oh, yes. If if you were to ask me on a good pain day what my pain level is at, it's a steady state. It is always there. I'm always feeling it. And what some people don't realize is beneath the smile, beneath the giggles, beneath the positive attitude, there's still always pain because EDS is not going away. I'm always going to have it. And the way I explain it to people is, it's like, if you were to wake up every morning and know that you're going to stub your toe, you stub it every single day, and it hurts every single day if but you're not going to lay in bed because you know that that stub toe is going to hurt when you get out of bed. And so the way that I've tried to face it is that, you know, I know that this is going to hurt, and I know that I'm going to have to deal with maybe some extra pain depending on what I'm doing, but... It's all about your mindset and if you're able to push through and maybe come up with adaptations in your body. For example, if if I'm trying to get out of bed very, very quickly, uh, if I jump out, I will most likely fall on my face because just on ananya kicks in where my blood pressure will drop or my joints might my be dislocated when they're not properly placed and so I need to take an extra couple seconds to put those back in. Um, and so I'm always in pain, but it's about what I do with my body in order to almost protect it despite having that pain.
2: So you mentioned just a little bit ago that you haven't always had this this sort of healthy of an approach to uh, Ehlers-Danlos. So take me back to when you were first diagnosed. What led up to that diagnosis, first of all? When did the, when did the pain start that you later recognized as Ehlers-Danlos? What, what led to the diagnosis?
1: I was about 10 years old. I grew up a competitive gymnast, and so I was in the gym, my goodness, probably 40 hours a week. I was always in the gym. And I have injuries that never seemed to heal properly. I had an injury to my ankle and my heel, and they couldn't figure out what it was, thought it was a sprain, and ended up putting a cast on it because the thing wouldn't heal up. And I would have wrists and shoulders and knees that would consistently dislocate. Uh, but it took one injury where I was on the uneven bar's. And I peeled off, landed between two mats, the way that I call scorpion style, with my chest on the ground and my feet over my head, uh, backwards. And I developed this injury in the middle of my spine. And for about three years, doctors could not figure out what was going on. They would feel my spine, and all of a sudden, this one vertebrae would almost disappear. And they'd bring their colleagues in and say, look at this girl, look at this girl. And they would do imaging and other tests, and everything would come back clear. And so I was kind of this walking medical mystery. It wasn't until I was actually seeing my physical therapist, who we'd been together for three years at that point. We had tried everything from intense physical therapy to gentle physical therapy to literally hanging me by my feet to try and resolve this pain and nothing would fix it. And he eventually came up with this theory of Ehlers-Danlos syndrome. I saw two more doctors. One who told me, oh, no, no, sweetie, you don't have Eh Ehlers-Danlos. That's a pretzel guy in circus. That's not you. And then another one took him 15 minutes to look at my body, look at my medical history, look at the way that things moved right in front of him, and found out that I did have Ehlers-Danlos syndrome. And so it was not necessarily one injury that caused it, But it was a series that led up to the findings that there was something going on in my body that people could not see.
2: I want to take you back to that that period, and it sounds like years, that period of not knowing, of not knowing what the problem was. Um, What was that like for you?
1: It was a very, very close version of health. I was in my pre-adolescent years, and it's a very formative time. And we had doctors who were telling me that there was nothing wrong with me, that I was making it up, that I couldn't possibly be in the amount of pain that I was claiming to be in because I was smiling. One doctor actually told me that if I was a 9 out of 10, that we would be pulling me off the ceiling. And that's just not the case when you're in this type of pain every single day of your life, whether you're 10, whether you're 50, whether you're 100. It's your normal. And when you're trying to describe these things to a doctor and they don't understand or they don't believe you, it takes a toll on your mental health. And then adding on to that, we were trying all of these different things in school of me not playing on the playground, so I was ostracized for that, me not carrying a thing and not even a pencil. And it made me kind of strange. They would exclude me from things. It. it also took a toll on my family I have a brother, and I also have parents who are actively involved. And My mom tells the story of once when there's the doctors told me to carry a rolling backpack because they didn't want me carrying anything on my back. And the teachers told her that, she, that we couldn't do that because it wasn't fair to the other kids, and what if there was a fire? And she just broke down in the hallway because she didn't know what to do with her child because the doctors were telling her, well, we don't know. Try this. Try that and the school wasn't able to conform to what they were saying when we were trying something. And you have all of these people who are in disbelief who are telling you that you're a liar or just simply telling you that they don't know what's wrong, and you feel extremely helpless. And like I said, this is happening during formative years of my life, but this happens to people when they're in their teens, when they're in their 20s, when they're in their 30s and 40s and 50s and all the way up. And I think that the fact that this is happening no matter what age, it can be extremely destructive if you don't have support supportive people around you.
2: So you get this diagnosis, and now you finally have a, a name to this thing. You, you sort of you, you've given a clarity in that sense. Um, what then? W- what then becomes the plan for how you're going to manage it? In other words, did you did it start the next day with a new outlook? Did did that change the way you approached it? Just knowing what it was
1: mentally, it did it did change the way because. Finally, I had a name for what was going on in my body. I could say, yeah, I dislocate because I have Ehlers-Danlos Syndrome, or I'm having this pain because I have Ehlers-Danlos Syndrome. And I finally had a reason and almost evidence to back up all of my claims that for years that people were telling me wasn't there. But moving forward, we didn't know the extent of which it really affected the body. I mean, this was 10 years ago. And so we just thought, okay, well, you dislocate things, and we have to keep an eye on your heart every once in a while, and that was it. Fast forward 10 years, and I'm playing college soccer and lacrosse and studying to be a doctor myself, and I begin to lose feeling in my limbs. I begin to lose my memory, and things start keep adding up and adding up. And even 10 years later, I'm having doctors tell me, yeah, you have EDS. but well, we don't really know what this symptom is being caused by, And when doctors don't know what's wrong with you, even if you have a diagnosis, you have to believe in yourself. And so I think the fact that I was diagnosed and knew what was the cause of whatever it may be, it helped me to believe in myself a little bit more optimally.
2: So speaking of believing in yourself, you know, I, I listen to your story and I think, okay, if if somebody um, else has been diagnosed with something in those preteen years, for example, if they get diagnosed with EDS and now they're listening to this interview, they're going to hear you then talking about playing soccer despite all these all these problems and think, wait, how does that happen? So so basically, how how do you do that? How do you have this? Um, physically very difficult condition and then remain athletic, remain active despite the pain and despite the challenges. How have you done that?
1: I think it's extremely important to remain active. However, looking back after having 10 brain and spinal surgeries and going through all that I've been through, playing those active sports and those contact sports so vigorously, I think, it exacerbated the symptoms that I had and almost made things progress quicker Looking back, I wish I would not have played sports to the level that I did, especially after a diagnosis, but we didn't know better. I mean, now we know better, and I've actually had some parents ask me, you know, should I let my kids play basketball? Should I let them do gymnastics, knowing that we have this condition? And while I don't want to say it, I I want to say no, because you have one body, and you really, really need to take care of it the best that you can. And that being said, it is, so important to keep active, whether it's walking every day, whether it is going to the gym every once in a while. Mild swimming is really, really good for the body because you're not putting that strain on your joints. The most important thing is moderation. If you're able to stay active, but not overdo it, I think that's where where the best things come into play because you want to take care of especially your joints and your muscles and what people don't realize is you have a multitude of joints that are in within your spine. And each one of those is taking wear and tear each time you step onto the soccer field to play or each time you step onto the balance beam and you're contorting. You need to really take care of it. And so even now when I'm training for pageants and trying to become physically fit and keep a healthy and active lifestyle – I need to make sure that when my body is in pain that I stop and that I'm really, really listening to the messages that my body is sending me while I'm trying to keep it active.
2: So you've alluded to several, you know, things that you do to to, uh, go through day by day and, and live actively with this condition, you know, moderation, the healthy mindset, all those things. You mentioned earlier medications that you take. On that side, you know, how, how do you manage this condition from medication to physical therapy? What's involved in uh, living every day with EDS for you?
1: It is extremely intensive, um, very, very frustrating at times as well. You, it's a careful balance of finding good medical professionals who can take care and understand your body. Um, right now I need a good pain management doctor who is able to understand EDS. Because in the Ehlers-Danlos Syndrome body, we metabolize drugs very, very, very differently than other people do. And that can get very complicated, especially in politics now with the Affordable Care Act and the opioid crisis. Sometimes our bodies need things that other people don't. So we need to make sure that we have doctors who understand that and who will take care of that. On another medical professional front, my physical therapist is my number one. If I dislocate a joint, he's the one that I go to first because I know that he will be able to tell, okay, is this something that we just need to take care of for a little while, or do I need to get casted? Do I need to really, really go take care of it even further? Um, But when it comes to medication and seeing doctors, I've had to build up almost a mental tolerance to make sure that when someone doesn't understand, I don't let that affect me to the greatest extent. Um, I've been in the case and point where I dislocated my wrist, and a doctor at the ER tried to tell me that I had front of elbow, um, which is not even the same part of the body. And so it can be frustrating. But during the times when you're having to dole out daily medications and you're seeing the quantity of that, you need to understand that our bodies, we're doing the best that we can for them. You're not a drug seeker, you're taking care of your body and what you need it. Uh, when I'm having to wear braces on parts of my body, I need to understand the fact that I'm doing those things because my body needs it. I have a handicap placard for days where I have trouble walking. And that is a big mental struggle to have to face the fact that I might not look disabled, but at that time, I'm using the utmost discretion to admit to myself that I do need to use the things in place for people who need it. And so I think you just need to make sure that you're taking care of your body and taking care of yourself.
2: So you've sort of thought beyond yourself as as you've gone through this, and you've kind of used – you've found a platform uh, to spread the word about EDS and your experiences with it, and you've done that in a few different ways. And and one I want to talk about is is competition in in beauty pageants. So tell me about that. How – how have you, you combined EDS and beauty pageants?
1: Well, I can tell you that was something that I never thought I would ever, ever do. If growing up you told me I was going to be in a beauty pageant, I would laugh at you. Quite frankly, probably the way that my parents did when I first told them that I wanted to be in a pageant. Growing up, I played sports. I was athletic. I was on the track to be a doctor. And when those things started to become taken away from me, when I had surgeries, I needed a new form of competition. I needed a way to express myself. And I found that through pageants. I began working with an organization that I could hold a service platform, and I started something called But You Don't Look Sick, and it's making invisible illnesses visible. Because across our country, there's 138 million people who have an invisible illness, and their stories are not told. They don't get to speak up, and and nobody really recognizes it. And so we have these people who are silently struggling, and I found myself in a time of my life, in an opportunity that I could speak up for them, I could speak up for myself and tell the stories and the realities of people who have an invisible illness. It just so happens that it involves wearing a crown and sash, but sometimes that crown and sash makes people listen a little bit further because it's kind of an oxymoron to have a 25-inch scar be wearing heels and have this. What Some people might call a dreadful story of having these surgeries and this body that doesn't work. However, my mind works and my voice works, and I'm trying to use that to best my abilities.
2: So what inspired you to, to think that you wanted it to use work this invisible illness into pageants? That would, a lot of people would have thought that that would have been something, like you said, that nobody would have noticed. You would have just competed. What made you think that that was a place to take this invisible illness and make it visible?
1: I have always been an opportunist. If there's an opportunity and really a gap in something, I the really need to fill that gap. Whether it's putting on a prom for kids in the hospital when I'm a freshman in college or helping tornado victims or helping our veterans, whatever it may be, if I see a need, I will really do anything to fulfill that need. And when I began entering the pageant, this opportunity came about to have a platform and I said, who's better to speak about and to speak for than, than my own community, the people who understand me the best. There's a lot of platforms about bullying and about X, Y, and Z, but there was nobody who was talking about invisible illnesses. And Ehlers-Danlos syndrome has many comorbidities that are also invisible, whether it be dysautonomia, pop, hypokalemic periodic paralysis, and, and so many others. Nobody talks about it. And so when I first got involved, I kind of thought to myself, how better to exhibit the realities of the things that we are faced with by showing people that, yes, I look fine. Beauty queens, by stereotypical standards, are perfect. They have perfect hair, perfect teeth, perfect whatever. And, and I'm very imperfect with a 25-inch scar that splits my spine in half. And so I thought if I could pe- make people listen to me and show them my scars and show them that just because you don't look sick doesn't mean that you aren't sick, then I could not only speak to people who are under the misconceptions, but are the people who are being really discriminated against who have a visible illness.
2: So one of the other things you've done is you've created the Zebra Network. Tell me about that.
1: <laughs> yes. Um, Another one of those things where I felt a need and I wanted to fill it. There are people who come from across the state, across the country, across the world to the DMD area, the is Columbia and Maryland type areas to seek out help for other family syndrome, whether they're trying to find a diagnosis or treatment or have surgery. They get here and they have no support. Many people, they Drain their bank accounts in order to get here and to have these surgeries. They can't afford to have someone else come over, and they struggle to find a place to stay. And even when you're having surgery, there's a caretaker by your side, twenty four seven. They can't even leave the room to even get lunch. And so I saw a need at twenty two years old with my degree for this this support system. And so I founded the Weaver Network. We're a five hundred one c three nonprofit. So we're tax exempt and I wanted to make sure that when people are coming to an area, especially a place where I live, that we are doing all that we can to help them. You know, this is a, a difficult in and of itself. Having EDS is probably one of the worst things that, that could happen. You have a disease that no one can help you with, and, and people aren't even looking for a cure. And to have to go through things, I want to make it as, easy as I can with the resources that I can. And so the Zebra Network came about so that we can supply that support for the patients who
2: need it. So for somebody who is at that point that you were at um, before uh, where they're searching for what's wrong with them or they've mm-hmm. just been diagnosed and they're trying to figure out what, what is the right next step for them, how do they get to where you are in terms of sort of how did, uh, get having such a Positive mental attitude about what's possible and what your limitations are, and, and how to do that. You mentioned you weren't always this way. So, what's your what's your advice for that for them?
1: Absolutely. In America, when people say that you have a dis- disability, they think that you are not able to do anything in life. But really, to have a disability, you think about the word. Um, it's not an inability, but you're just not able to do certain things. And I think if you're able to focus on the things that you are able to do, your abilities, then you can have a fruitful life. I have found that I'm not able to physically run. That would be one of my disabilities, one of many. But I am able to speak out, and so I focus on my abilities. I think it's about the way that you you enter life. If you focus on the things that you are able to do and focus on – to be say the bright side of things, then you'll be able to make it pretty far. You can't compare yourself to others. And probably the biggest thing that you can do is connecting to people who are in the same position that you are. It's very, very helpful to find people who have EDS, whether they are Internet buddies across the world or they are in the same state as you are. I think if you're able to find people who understand what you're going through, you don't feel as alone. I like things when you think of going to conferences and you're in your own little world where people understand what life is like. They say, oh, yeah, you know, when I try to swallow my pills, sometimes I trickle them, too, and you're able to share tips and tricks like, oh, well, I take a spoonful of applesauce, and that helps to push them down. It makes your life a little bit easier. And so for anyone who has just been diagnosed or even who has been diagnosed, Go to the Zebra Network and even though it's .org, or shoot me an email, and I'd love to help them. Love to help them find tips and tricks that will make their lives, daily lives, easier, or help them connect to other people or find good doctors. That's what we're here for. But I think the biggest thing that they can do is just believing in yourself. You know, you know your body better than anyone else does. You know how things feel every day. You know what helps and what doesn't, and You can't listen to the people who tell you that you cannot do something. You need to figure it out for your own, and you need to try your best every single day. Even if you can't do it, at least you try.
2: Victoria Graham, thank you so much.
1: Thank you so much for having me. Thank you for listening to Move Forward Radio. Insight from our guest is for informational purposes only and should not be used as a substitute for individual treatment by a medical professional. Learn more about how a physical therapist can help you and find a physical therapist in your area at moveforwardpt.com. For an archive of past episodes, visit moveforwardpt.com radio.